not only am I justified in my spirit, the Bible also teaches that I am being sanctified in my soul. That is my mind, my will, and my emotions. That portion of the immaterial portion of man is being shaped into the image of Christ. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of Romans chapter 8, we began looking yesterday at the wonderful promise of redemption those in Christ Jesus can look forward to, even though they still struggle at times with their old sin nature. Beginning in verse 5, however, the Apostle Paul gives us insight into how we can overcome the sin nature and experience freedom from bondage through the blessing of the Holy Spirit. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy from Philippians 3:17 and 18 gives us an example of how believers can overcome the old sin nature as they walk according to the pattern set before them. He is using here a term walk, which is what we call an idiom or Hebraism. He's not talking about a literal physical walk, of course. He's speaking here of a spiritual walk. And we use it that way if you think about it. Very often in English we say, well, he's really walking with the Lord or she's really not walking with God today. Well, he describes these who walk who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, The NIV renders the term, they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says here in verse 18, for many walk of whom I have often told you and even tell you now weeping, He said, of whom I often told you. This is not the first time they heard it. Paul told them many times when he was there in Philippi. And a preacher, a good pastor, will repeat himself for several reasons. One, most people don't get it the first time. And two, if it's a healthy church, there'll always be an influx of new believers. And those new believers are hearing things for the very first time, though you may have heard them your whole life. And three, you need to hear it over and over again so that you can explain it. It's one thing to know a doctrine. It's quite another thing to be able to explain that doctrine. So Paul said, I told you over and over and over again, even weeping of those who are enemies of the cross. And really, if a church is healthy, the devil will attack it. He will attack it with false teachers. He will attack it with false doctrine. He will attack it with errant brethren. He will attack it with novices. The Bible teaches all of those. And so Paul warned this this church whom he planted, whom he pastored of false teachers, of false leaders, of false doctrine, of novices who are in the ministry who shouldn't be in the ministry because God has not yet called them to the ministry. And what is he saying? He's saying, you need to guard yourself when you listen to what I tell you. What did he tell? What did he give them? He gave them the word of God. Jesus said people err because they do not know the scriptures. And so God wants us to be protected. And the way we are protected is by knowing the Bible. And if you don't know your scripture, then you will be open for all kinds of potential spiritual disaster. Many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, when he mentions here the cross of Christ, he obviously is not referring to the literal wooden instrument in this context upon which the Lord Jesus died. The word is used interchangeably in the New Testament with the message of salvation. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, 
but to preach the gospel. By the way, baptism is separated from the gospel. So anyone who ever tells you that you need to be baptized to be saved, know that they are preaching a different gospel, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this same book, he will define the gospel in chapter 15 as the death, burial, and resurrection. Christ didn't send me to baptize. That wasn't the principal reason Jesus sent me, though Paul did baptize, as he just described in two prior verses. But he sent me to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. And so the cross of Christ refers to the gospel, to the atoning death of our Lord. And that's the heart of our faith. And that's why we repeat it. And that's why Paul could say, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now look at verse 19, whose end, he says is destruction, whose God is their appetite. The King James says, whose God is their belly. The word appetite is the Greek word kolia. We get our English word colitis from it. That has to do with the midsection of the human body, particularly the stomach. What is he saying? He's saying there are people who are ruled by sensual desires, whose God is their appetite. They are ruled by their own selfish desires. And as you read Philippians, you see that it can include religious desires, the desire for fame, the desire for money, the desire for things. It might be your local hunting club. It might be uh, the reputation that you have in the community that you want, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds, note, unearthly things. He's describing people who have a this life only kind of perspective. And in the immediate context, he's describing religious people, religious, but without the power of God, no real substance to it. I was about 20 years ago in the church of the nativity, and I witnessed something that was an awful commercial for Christianity. That church is under the control of the Armenian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox. And a Greek Orthodox priest and an Armenian Orthodox priest were screaming at each other and it turned into a fist fight. And last year, it was all over the internet, the same thing happened over again, but not two priests, like 10 on each side and they were beating each other with brooms. You can be religious and at the same mind, uh, at the same time, mind earthly things. Now, people who are religious often don't see themselves as minding earthly things. They think they're spiritual. But what you think of yourself is irrelevant. What God thinks of you is what is most important. And that's what you want to find out. You want to take what you think about yourself and put it into the mirror of the Bible. Now, you might be thinking, well, pastor, there's a lot of earthly things that I have to do in this life. Does this mean that I am an enemy of the cross? No, the difference is how you do it. When you go to work, do you go to work just to make the almighty buck? Or do you go to work to serve your boss as you would serve Jesus Christ? Because as Colossians says, you're committed to excellence and you want to glorify God. Do you gather with your friends as an ambassador for Christ to influence them with the gospel, or do you just gather with your friends to be one of the guys and the gals? 
Again, even in this immediate context, religion can be fleshly. In fact, one of the themes of Philippians and Galatians is the devil doesn't hate religion. He loves it. He loves to use it. He manipulates religion to give people a sense that everything is fine. And so people can come even to a church like this. They can hear sermons. They can sing the hymns. They can give their money. But their mind can be a million miles away where they are not worshiping in spirit and in truth. The lights are on, but no one's inside. And so Paul back here in Romans 8 is describing two different mindsets. He's contrasting the disposition of the unbeliever who minds earthly things with that of the child of God who minds the things of the Spirit. And what captivates your mind is ultimately what you become. And so you have to honestly ask, has Jesus Christ ever captivated my mind? Look at verse 6 of Romans 8. For the mindset on the flesh is death. That is, the mindset of the unsaved, flesh-dominated, this-world-only kind of person has a destiny called death, what Revelation 20 will call the second death. By contrast, notice, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, understand, the devil will try to convince the people of this world that the pleasures of this world is what will bring life and peace. But God says just the opposite is true. So notice what he says here in verses 7 and 8, because the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, when people hear words like this, if they're comprehending them, some people will say, well, pastor, if a this life only kind of mindset, if a fleshly mindset is what drives me and therefore I am headed towards the second death and eternal death, I guess what I need to do is I need to change my mindset. I need to think differently. Well, you're partly right, but you're also equally wrong. If you're saved, that's true. Because if you're saved, you've been given the mind of Christ. And as Romans 12 will teach us, we're to renew that mind as we immerse our thoughts in Holy Scripture. But if you haven't been saved, you don't have the mind of Christ. You don't have the capacity to do this. And what you need is not to try to think differently. What you need is a second birth. You need a new nature that will produce a new mindset. The aphorism is true. An apple tree is not an apple tree because it bears apples. No, it bears apples because it is an apple tree. Its nature is that of an apple tree. And it's not until you receive a new nature, a new man, where you are born again, that you will even begin to have the ability to mind spiritual things. Those who are in the flesh, he just said in verse 8, cannot please God, no matter how religious they may be. That's the Pharisee in a nutshell. But in verse 9, he says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, verse 9 is very important for three reasons, and I don't want you to miss it. And again, you know, if you miss this, you're going to miss the beauty of what is going to flow. We're going to be in here nine or ten weeks, just in the eighth chapter. First, it tells me that the mark of a true, genuine, born-again Christian is that he has the Holy Spirit living in him. God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling in us is what distinguishes us from an unbeliever. The reason a true Christian can mind the things of the Spirit is because God, the Holy Spirit, inhabits him. He indwells him. 
Now, historically, some of my dear Pentecostal friends taught, and some to this day teach, and I love them in the Lord if they know Christ, and I love them if they're my enemy as well, doesn't matter. I'm called to love all men. But some of our brethren have taught that first you get saved, and then after you're saved, subsequent to salvation, you get God the Holy Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. That may have been true in Acts 2 before Pentecost, And it may have been true in a few exceptional examples as the church was being started. But by the time you come to the epistles, it's very clear. Put out in the margin next to verse 9, Ephesians 1.13. Paul says there in him, speaking of Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, which is what? The gospel of your salvation. Having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice you have to listen to the message. You can't be saved until you hear it. That's Romans 10. But it's not enough to hear the gospel. You have to believe the gospel. But when you hear, believe it, then what happens? You're sealed. And the revelation, there'll be 144,000 evangelists, Jewish men from the 12 tribes of Israel that God will put a special seal on. He himself will mark them and no one will be able to harm them, though they will want to kill them. Well, God marks you as one of his with a divine seal. And that divine seal is God, the Holy Spirit living in you. And so this is important, this verse, because it reminds me that I am indwelt by the Spirit. This is what 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there's a second reason why verse 9 is so important, and it's because the way Jesus Christ is compared to the Holy Spirit. Notice how the Holy Spirit is described. He's linked inseparably to Christ. In verse 9, he is called, notice, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to the left to John's Gospel, chapter 14. Go to John chapter 14, if you will. John 14. I want you to see something that will help illuminate this portion of Scripture for us. Now, there are upper rooms that are described in the Bible. We were in one a few weeks ago, if you remember, when a man by the name of Eutychus fell asleep during Paul's sermon and dropped dead. But then there is the upper room. And we know the actual physical location of the upper room because Scripture gives us some real insights. Now, the upper room, if you've been to it, looks different from the way it would have looked in Christ's day. There's some medieval arches in the room and so forth, but the, the, the size of the room has not changed. The floor of the room is basically the same with new rocks or tiles over it. But we know the location. If you've ever been to the upper room, right below it is the lower room where you will see the body of King David, where he's been buried. And they come out of the upper room and Peter preaches in Acts 2 and he uses a preposition when he describes and King David is right in our midst, literally. And so we know where this upper room was. And if you remember, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples in that upper room and he gave them a word of counsel and assurance. This is before the crucifixion. Look at John 14 and verse 16. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Now that word another is a very important word. And there's not a single English word that really corresponds And so I want you to understand what the Greek New Testament says. And and by the way, I hope when I quote the Greek New Testament, 
that you don't think I'm trying to show off because God knows that I am not. It's like one of my professors said in seminary, Greek is like your underwear. You don't show it off, but you use it for support. And I've studied Greek for years and years, and sometimes it can illuminate some things. In Greek, there are two words for the another. There's the Greek word heteros, and there's the Greek word alos. The Greek word alos is another of the same kind. The Greek word heteros means another of a different kind. The word heteros comes directly into English to describe an opposite kind. And so we speak of a heterosexual relating to different sexes. We speak of heteroxy, heterodoxy, uh, which speaks of uh, something that's less than orthodox, something that is different from the truth. But then there is the word alos that means another of the same kind. So if I can illustrate, if I asked you for a heteros biblios, another book, you could give me any book you wanted. You could give me a book on geography, on running, on Spanish, on on, uh, anything you can imagine, golf, hunting, you name it. You could give me any book you wanted. But if I asked you for an alos biblios, You would have to give me another book exactly like this book, torn in the same places it is torn, marked in the same places it is marked. That is the word that Jesus Christ is using here. He speaks of another helper. Some translations say another advocate. The old English says another comforter. He is going to send another one just like himself. Namely, look at verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in with you, but will be in you. Remember, no Old Testament saint was permanently indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. That's why John, whom Jesus said, no one ever born of a woman was greater of John, but he was least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because John never lived to see Pentecost. John was beheaded before the crucifixion. He never experienced this marvelous revelation that the Old Testament prophets spoke of concerning the new covenant. And so Jesus speaks here of the Holy Spirit who's been in their midst operating through Christ himself, but he was going to come live inside them. They were going to become temples of the Spirit. And then he says in verse 18 that this alos helper is so much like me that he can say in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. The Greek word is orphanus, from which comes our word orphan. An orphan is, uh, is someone who's been uh, bereft of their parents, so to speak. And Jesus said, though you may feel helpless tonight, though you may feel hopeless tonight, though you may feel devastated tonight because I told you I am leaving, I want you to know I am not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send another one just like me. He says, I will come to you. So here's a promise of Christ's coming that is so interesting because he is simultaneously absent and at the same time present. I will come to you. And he is so much like the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, that these are equivalent terms. And though physically, invisibly, he would leave the disciples to go to the Father's house, as he said in John 14, to prepare a place for them, yet spiritually and invisibly, he would be present with them. 
Now, this does not discount the literal second coming as the liberals use it. But he's saying, listen, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, because in sending God the Holy Spirit, I myself am coming. And this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet said of Messiah, that he would come as the everlasting father because he would not leave us as orphans. So when we get saved, let's ask an important question. Who is it that indwells us? Bring up this chart as you can see. God the Father indwells us, the Bible teaches. God the Son indwells us. And God the Holy Spirit indwells us. Now, last week we were describing the Trinity that there is one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. That while they are distinct, they are inseparable. So for instance, the Bible teaches in 1 John 4 and verse 12 that I am dwelt by God the Father. John writes, God, a reference to the Father, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And yet Colossians says that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. In other passages like 1 Corinthians 6 says that we're indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. This is part of the mystery of the Trinity. So Jesus is promising, listen, I'm going to leave, but I'm at the same time going to come to you. The members of the Godhead are inseparable, and yet they are distinct. Now back to Romans 8. There's a comparison here between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ. Now follow along here in verses 10 and 11, and we'll look at one final consequence of being indwelt. Notice, if Christ is in you, and he is through the Holy Spirit, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is law alive because of righteousness. With Jesus Christ living in us, the Bible says my spirit is alive, but my body is dead. You say, well, you look very much alive up there shaking this morning, Pastor. Well, from earth's perspective, I look alive. But from heaven's perspective, the Bible teaches my body is dead. Why? Because this principle of death is upon me. I am living, as he will later describe in this eighth chapter, in an aging, decaying body. And flesh and blood, mortality must put on immortality. This corruptible state must put on the incorruptible state. The body is aging, it can get sick, and I have to bring it from time to time to a repair shop. It's not getting better, it is getting worse, and so is yours, so don't look so pious. Look at verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does if you've been saved, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is coming a time that this verse promises that God is going to take me out of this death-like state and give me a new body. Thank God, as uh, 1 Corinthians 15 teaches, in the twinkling of an eye. How fast is the twinkling of an eye? It's faster than you can blink. In the twinkling of an eye, this mortality will put on immortality. But have you ever thought about the role that God the Holy Spirit will pray, play in that process? when we come to the 23rd verse, if you look down there in your Bible, uh, here it is. Notice he says, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Right now, we just have the first initial workings of the Spirit, but he's not done with us yet. 
as Romans 8, 11 and Romans 8, 23 teaches, we are awaiting the resurrection of our body. And so the Bible teaches me when I am saved, I am justified in the spirit. He says it here. I am made alive in the spirit. The spirit is alive. Why? Because of righteousness. You understand that, right? When you are outside of Christ, you are in Adam. You are in your own righteousness that falls short of the glory of God. But when you are positionally by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection placed in Christ, God clothes you in his righteousness. And for the first time ever, God, the Holy Spirit, can come and inhabit you. And so the Spirit is alive, he says here, because of righteousness. But notice in addition, not only am I justified in my spirit, the Bible also teaches that I am being sanctified in my soul. That is my mind, my will, and my emotions. That portion of the immaterial portion of man is being shaped into the image of Christ. Verse 12. So then, he says, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Why are we under obligation? What? Because God has given us a new mindset. A new mind in which to think. And so, but that's not over. He's not done with me yet. Not only am I made alive in the spirit, not only do I have a new mind shape, where new mindset where my mind, will, and emotions can be sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 13, he goes on to say, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now follow this. I know it's the meat of the word, but we need to get it. He is basically here giving the fruit or the proof that we have had a second birth, that we have a new mindset. If you are living only after the things of the flesh, I'm not talking here about perfection. Paul is talking about direction. If the direction of your life is just the things of the flesh, the Bible says you'll die. I spoke to a woman this week in her 60s who's hooked on drugs. She calls herself a born-again Christian. I said, look, there's, I know you love your pain pills. And you got to live with these pain pills. And, and not because you have pain, but because you like the way they make you feel. I said, there's one of two possibilities. You're either unregenerate and therefore only living after the things of this world, or you are a rebellious, disobedient Christian who's out of fellowship with Almighty God. But if the sole direction of your life is to live after the things of the flesh, then you have good, positive proof, reason to believe that you have never truly been born again. Understand, this is not one of those I can lose my salvation verses. Before we are done with the eighth chapter, Paul will give one of the most compelling, airtight arguments for the eternal security of the believer that you will find anywhere in all of the New Testament. But he's basically teaching in a way that is similar to the way you might teach your child. You say, listen, if you walk out into the street without looking, you're going to get hit by a car. Or if you put your hand on a hot burner, you're going to get burned. That's a painful thought. In the same way, he's saying, if you are living according to your fleshly desires and you pursue only those things, you're going to make a mess out of your life. And in the end, you will experience death, the second death. It is only in the power of the Holy Spirit that we can overcome the desires of the fleshly nature. 
To listen again to today's message, The Blessings of the Spirit, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, which can be found at the iTunes Store for Apple products or the Google Play Store for Android devices. Simply search for Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy. Of course, you can always listen online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or if you would like a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478. Perhaps you have a question you would like Dr. Brogy to answer personally. You can do that on Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line on WAGP.net. Tomorrow, we conclude our look at the blessing of the Spirit. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.